This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the first time. intro, and, uh, and then you can introduce yourself. Okay. Okay, So that, and then we'll go from there. Three, two, one... Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today I've got with me a writer, director, producer and star of new indie Brit film, um, Tian Sangria. Introduce yourself and say hello. Hi, I'm Peter Domankiewicz and uh, I must be insane to do that many things. I forgot to add, he also sung on one of the songs on the soundtrack, so he has (laughs) covered all the bases. So, Peter, do you want to get for those that don't know the film at the moment? Do you want to give us a brief synopsis as to what Tian Sangri is about? Indeed. Well, it's uh, it's the story of David, a, a guy from London who goes over to Madrid, following his heart, to live with his Spanish girlfriend. They're both madly in love, and essentially the whole thing turns to shit in the first few minutes of the film. Um, and he finds himself sleeping on somebody's sofa and wondering what to do with his life, being too ashamed to go home, Mm. and uh, has to face up to the reality of what living in Spain is about and see if he can adapt or sink. Okay, now, there are are many things that are obvious to make as far as British films, and one of them isn't necessarily to go to Spain to make it. So do you want to give us what, what, what compelled you to sort of start developing a story that would involve that element to it? Well, I kind of cheated, because actually uh, I did go to Spain. Yeah. Um, funnily enough, to live with a Spanish girlfriend. Of course, there's nothing <laughs> autobiographical about my film. Uh, should be stressed, especially if she's listening. Uh, um, and so I was living in Spain and actually developing a series of feature films over there, because yeah. I too did, in fact, stay, and, and weirdly enough, uh, did have interest in projects over there. Yeah. Uh, and this was probably project number three. Okay. Um, two sort of rise and fall. Um, mm-hmm. The producer went bankrupt on one. A totally different film, a very intense sort of woman's drama. Uh, almost n- nothing you could spot in comparison with this. And I wrote this as a commercial proposition to sell as a script. No intention of doing more than that, because it was far too big a film for me to get as a first-time uh, director. I mean, I directed TV, I directed short films, but, you know, a movie's a movie. It's a much bigger deal. Mm-hmm. But... When, um, so I was there in Madrid, and when I thought about, well, you know, I've just got to make a film. I've been seven years in development and not directing anything, and I don't feel like a director anymore. I don't don't feel I can hold my head up and say, oh, yeah, I'm a director, because I'm not. I'm a writer who didn't get a film made. (laughs) Okay. Basically, I mean, that's what I want, reality. And I looked at the scripts I'd got, and I thought, well, 
the thing about Tea and Sangria is it has, has a huge cast. I mean, it's got nine principal characters. There are 40 or 50 actors in the film. There's about 20 significant roles in it of some kind. Yeah. Um, uh, but I thought, well, you can always find good actors. That's been my experience. As long as you put the work in, you can find them. They're always there waiting to be discovered. Mm -hmm. And I had this wonderful free set, which was Madrid, which is a city that's been seen very little in films, especially internationally, especially in Britain. I mean, the only films really to feature Madrid much are Almodovar's, and he usually features some kind of sort of shitty outskirts. Yes, uh, uh, true. In fact, when I was pitching this to some people in Spain, and, I, and uh, it was read by pretty much every big producer in Spain, and liked by every big producer, um, some people said, oh, but you can't do a romantic film in Madrid. And I was like, well, why not? You know, because to Spanish people, like, well, it's just Madrid. It's like, well, but, you know, Rome isn't charming all the time, nor is Paris, and plenty of London is a horrible place. You know, it's like, it just depends how you show it. Mm, uh, so whether it seems romantic or not, the centre of Madrid is beautiful. Uh, I was I attended a wedding in Madrid. It was a lovely place. Well, exactly. Um, and I just thought it's really never been. I mean, I, I actually asked every producer I met. I said, can you think of any sort of Spanish film that's sort of maybe along the same lines? Which they really couldn't come up with a clear sort of like, oh yeah, this sort of thing's been done. Oh yeah, Madrid's been used like that. So um, I thought, well, okay, well let's do it because I've got Madrid, and I'll find the cast. I just had one problem. I mean, in my mind, when I was pitching it to, to producers to do as a co-production, it was like, well, you know, I get Simon Pegg in to do the lead role. You surround him with some really good Spanish actors. You know, bish, bash, bosh, job done. Mm -hmm. They actually weren't 100% convinced by that, or they might have commissioned me. Um, so I had a bit of a problem, and I thought, well, I can't really bring anybody from over the UK. I'd already actually, doing other things, auditioned a lot of British actors in Madrid and wasn't anybody suitable. And I had, meanwhile by accident, more or less, started training as an actor, sort of as a hobby. Yeah. I, I did it out of curiosity for a week once, and the tutors were so obsessed with the fact I had to continue that I did. Right. So I, I did a year of part-time training in Spanish with an Argentinian guy, and then I met a mad American guy called Christopher Geitz, who ran a small studio called Cinema Room. Okay. And uh, he... I would go to him once a week. We did a class kind of in English, which was mainly me and a lot of Spanish people that couldn't talk English. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a very good teacher, and they're very good students there, and uh, several of them appear in the film. It's where, indeed, I met Angela Boyks, who is the, um, uh, the lead, um, plays my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, although she was only there briefly, but we clicked so well the first time we ever did a scene together... Um, that when I was casting, my mind went back to her because I thought, I've, I've given this really hard challenge to myself. Now I'm directing it. <laughs> I thought it was going to be somebody else's problem, yeah. which is you only have a very few minutes at the beginning of the film to believe in a relationship which is kind of spiny, that they're not 100% compatible, but they are madly in love with each other. Mm. And they can't quite get along with each other and they can't quite leave each other alone. And I don't give a lot of backstory to it or anything. You just have to go, bang, there it is, and you swallow it or you don't. And if you don't, then the film kind of doesn't work. <laughs> uh, no, so I thought that was a, I thought that was a great strength of the film, actually, that you you didn't you didn't waste our time with with um, getting to know him in the sense that you get to know a person, but you you threw us into the situation and then lit the firework. 
Yeah, that, I just felt that was a lot more interesting. And in fact, the part there's like a there's a song near the beginning of the film during which uh, uh, you sort of see the relationship flash by in about two and a half minutes. And we, mm. we shot a lot of material for that. We shot in the end like forty six little scenes for that montage, maybe only half of which made the cut. Wowza! Uh, and, and all of that was improvised. In fact, the actual dialogue scene that leads into the montage was also improvised on the day although it doesn't appear it, but it was in my head and I just felt the film needed it. And so I just sort of pitched it to her and we did it. And in fact, what you see in the film is the first take. Okay. Um, and everything you see for the next two and a half minutes was spontaneously uh, shot at various moments. Uh, some of it was actually shot without us even discussing what was going to happen. So let, let's just rewind the clock a second then before we yeah. get too much detail about the production. You, you said you wrote this as a sort of spec script to sell and you shot it around, but thinking with your writing head, <clears throat> I don't know where you can think with any other heads, um, what, what, what compelled you to tell this particular story? What was it about, I mean, obviously your situation was, was the perfect foundation for it, but what, what, what was it in essence that compelled you to write this story that you've done? Um, well, obviously I'd, I, I'd had the experience myself of adapting to Spain, and it's a very interesting experience to crash into another culture, but then actually start to adapt to it, and then even see advantages in it. Yeah. Um, and, and I felt it's not there've been culture, you know, fish out of water is the classic thing people say, but particularly like classes of culture before. But I, I always feel, I mean, like okay, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, which of mm. course is a film everybody quoted at me as I was pitching it. Mm. Uh, it is to me the actual inverse of what I'm doing. Because to me, that is a film, as most of these films are, from the outside in. As in, it's a tourist's eye view of a place and a culture. Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to tell a story where it is the fish out of water, but you're kind of swimming with the fish. Yeah, you're it's sinking like, or swimming, it's, aren't you? <laughs> it's not like you're looking into an aquarium. It's like you're in there with him, uh, actually attempting to swim. Uh, and rather than presenting all the cliches you might expect about Spain, uh, you, you present the other things, which is like you know the, the way men relate to each other in their friendships, for instance, mm. the, the complete obsession with jamón, you know, the, the Spanish hat, which is like a sort of national god, and <laughs> on all these kind of odd things, which you become acutely aware of once you've been there a while. Uh, and I wanted that. I wanted to really talk about Spain from the inside out, as a stranger going into it, but like being in the belly yourself and make the audience feel that. Yeah, because I must admit, I mean, I've not been to Spain that much and certainly haven't lived there, but I never really appreciated that, certainly the two the two guys that your character pairs up with, as it were, who help, who, you know, share their hand with him, as it were. <clears throat> they, that, that was, um, that was, that bordered, that bordered on sort of homoerotic kind of stuff, you know, the way they were together, as <laughs> men. It was because I, I kept thinking that was going to be the, because I was watching it, and obviously I only watched it about Sort of two hours before this conversation, um, I kept thinking they were going to sort of indulge you in their in their fantasy or something. That was what I thought we were going to get, but that was actually that was something you'd observed about how men are with each other, as it were. Yeah, and 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 uh, inspired myself by by. by to be honest, I, I most of my friends have always tended to be female in my life. Most of my good friends. Okay. Uh, and then the few times in my life I've made really good male friends was in Spain. <clears throat> okay. Because Spanish guys, to me, seem that bit, in a way, softer, a bit more open about talking about things and all of that. And Well, Spanish and Argentinian. 
guys that I've known. And there is this strange intimacy. I mean, I, I have seen friendships like that where you'd almost go, they're a gay couple, aren't they? Mm. And, and they're not. There's just this great... Int- and there's a scene in the film where, you know, I'm, I'm basically naked in a little dressing gown and they get into bed with me to have a chat about a woman I've just shagged. And, you know, one of them is just in his underpants and another one is just wearing a dressing gown like me. And, and you know, like in, in Britain, you just, you just don't do that, you don't... Of course not. No, no, totally. Yeah, that's what, that's what struck me. Uh, but actually, it's way people do and they don't think it's anything particularly odd about it. Uh... But equally, but equally, it's a culture that is very, very macho as well, isn't it? It's the kind of, it's a weird, it's a weird, because um, obviously you have another character that does the opposite end of that. Of yeah. That kind of. Uh, You've got Ricardo, who is yeah, the, yeah. The, the sort of classic shagger trying to, to control himself. But even there, even there, he's a much more kind of blunt character. But in the bluntness, there is a kind of a helpfulness, <laughs> even though it's comical at times. But it's just kind of like somebody to say, okay. Face reality, you know, which also is quite a Spanish thing to just tell it to you like it is. Well, I must admit, I mean, I felt like I was learning something watching it, actually. The uh, the lessons you were getting in the coffee shop about how to order a croissant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I did like, I mean, I fully appreciated the, the, the notion of just, I mean, you wouldn't do normally, but that we are, we as a country, England, that is, are very apologetic in the way that we approach anybody in customer services. Yeah, and obviously your Spanish friends in the film, as it were, are telling your character who's trying to adapt that you don't apologise. And it's just I thought it was a really, it was a really cute way of just bridging a, a cultural divide with something that seems very, I don't know, very much the minutiae, but I think it said quite a lot. Well, I think those things do. Yes, that's why I wanted that in the film. And also, I mean, um, uh, before I wrote the script, mm. uh, one of the things I, I said to myself, well, there's three things I said to myself. My principle for the script, and probably for the next thing I'm going to write too, could be summed up in four word, words, which is real emotions and real funny. Okay. As in, you hopefully believe in the relationships in the film as real, as existing in the real world, not movie world, mm. and that you do nonetheless laugh and smile during the film uh, because, you know, it still seems funny to you. Uh, but the other thing that was important to me is to me it was kind of like it was my my love letter to Madrid mm-hmm. in a way about my... T- I didn't know that my time there was coming to an end when I was making it. I had not made any decision to return to Britain at all. But I realised on reflection that's exactly what I was doing. How, how long have you been in Madrid before you began to write this? I suppose I've been there, uh, let me see, probably about four or five years. OK. When I, when I wrote it, um, when I wrote the first draft. Mm-hmm. Of an idea, yeah, and uh, and so I'd been there what six years by the time I six or a bit more by the time I shot it. Okay, so yeah, so you were you were properly you were properly immersed in it when you were, and obviously I guess I guess you were recalling some of your early experiences in the way that you saw the cultural divide between two European countries. Oh yes, <clears throat> and uh, and actually one thing, uh, well, I, I, I kept saying this in my pitch to producers, which is I found some statistics about. Um, movement of tourists in Europe. Right. Uh, sounds very dull, but there's a really startling statistic in it, which is that in terms of the British going to Spain, we made something like 13 to 14 million trips a year. Wowza. And that is, there is no comparison for that for any other nationality in Europe going to another country. There's nothing remotely like that. We must like it. 
So exactly, we, ha we have this obsession with Spain, you can't call it less than an utter obsession with Spain, whilst failing to really understand the Spanish or the Spanish understand us. And that to me seems intrinsically funny. Yes, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah I never thought about it that way. And, uh, and because of economic problems these days, there's a, there's a massive influx of Spanish people coming the other way now like never before. Oh, yeah. I mean, I notice it, yeah, just around where I live and, and everywhere. And, of course, it, there's a part of me that, having lived seven years in Spain, listening to the Spanish slag off the British, yeah. uh, you know, for being uptight and this and that and the other, that it is quite funny. In a way, now they're all here. And when I talk, I have a lot of Spanish friends in London now. Yeah. And uh, when you talk to them, and very often, although, you know, there's things that bug them about the British, there's a certain sense of... It is quite nice to live in a place where, like, things sort of work and are organised and happen when they're supposed to, and, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's not all bad. Mm. In fact, some don't want to go back, and some, I think, take some of it back. In a way, you take some of that idea back with you. In the same way that I now live in London, and I have a much more laid-back attitude, and I'm more spontaneous about things than I used to be, because I know you can just do all sorts of things, just like that. And you can make them happen. It doesn't always have to be uh, planning weeks or years ahead. <laughs> but it's still nice to get your bins collected on time. That's it's extremely nice. Well, in fact, I'm not going to criticise Madrid on that. Yeah. The, the, the amount of refuse collection and street cleaning that went on was truly breathtaking in Madrid, I have to say. Oh, I mean, but just a bad example, but no, I know friends of mine that moved back from Spain for similar... Not, I, I use bins in a kind of general yeah. sense. I don't mean it's messy. I mean, local administration could be better. Uh, yes, well, well, actually, more it's things like, oh, um, I, I, I'd like to change my internet provider. Yes. And you then discover that, in fact, there's some highly complex contractual thing that's almost possible, impossible to escape from and nobody actually understands, but if you try to do it, they freeze your bank account. Or, and then when you have done it, you discover the new thing supposed to be installed can't be done for two months. And, in fact, you're just going to be without internet for the next two months and there's nothing you can do about that and there's nobody you can talk to about it. It's that kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> that will drive you slowly mad at times, unless you sort of learn how to ride the wave. <laughs> Now look, you've you've given us some hints about sort of. Um, in fact, no, let's not do, let's not do the pre-production bit yet. What was um, in terms of storytelling? What were the sort of challenges for you as a writer? You know, in terms, you said you, you you said there's there's nine principal characters, and obviously mm. David's got to be the sort of constant between all of them. Um, and, and 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 even what you just said there with, with the sorry, what you said earlier about the the way you managed to sort of con contract a big big story and backstory of the two lead characters, into more or less three minutes. I mean, what, what were some of the other storytelling challenges for you throughout the film? Well, for several years when I was in Spain, friends of mine, including a, a, a friend who's a, quite a well-known author in Spain, were saying to me, oh, you know, you've got to write about, you know, so many funny things have happened to you, Peter, you've got to write about it. And I always said, well, you know, these are anecdotes. Anecdotes don't make a movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I could not find any way in. And actually, my way in was precisely, I remember I was on the metro one day, uh, riding between teaching some English classes, and suddenly I thought, well, instead of telling the story of a relationship, wouldn't it be interesting to start a film with a relationship ending? You know, you think that's what the film's about, but in fact it's about something else. Yeah, no, I must be uh, a surprise was, for me. And that was kind of the uh, starting point for a different kind of storytelling. Mm -hmm. And... 
then I began to, and then I allowed myself to write a version of the film, which I wrote as a kind of a massive treatment or, or novella, about 90 pages long, just, okay. just as a text thing. Yeah. And I allowed myself to write out everything I wanted to in it, all the characters, incidents, all of this, just freely, without thinking how on earth it was going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, there's whole characters, huge chunks of that that were just utterly gone, running gags, all sorts of things that, that uh, disappeared along the way. But I... For me, my time in Spain was full of people. They were just, it, that's the only way I can describe it, just lots and lots of meeting and getting to know people and finding myself in all sorts of unexpected social situations. And I wanted the audience to feel that. And that required a large uh, cast of characters. Okay. Um, so can the I biggest challenge... Then? Can I ask you a question? Did that reflect you going out or does that reflect more just generally on if you go out in Madrid or wherever, you are going to find yourself being like introduced to people even if it's them introducing themselves to you uh absolutely i remember my first ever visit to madrid uh yeah. when i went to actually the height of the, the 2003 heat wave yeah. uh, to visit my then girlfriend right uh, and the first thing that struck me i mean it's more of an abstract thing in a way but after a few days there was the social fluidity which is to say that the kind of Barriers that we have a lot in England between one sort of person and another it might not be quite class, as we talked about it in the past, but it's still there very much in Britain, tended not to exist in the same way that you could easily find yourself talking to everybody from, like, the boss of a big company to a street cleaner. And it wasn't really a big deal that, you know, you, 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 could, you, you could move very freely socially and also people are very um, fastidious about you know if you if you with somebody you meet somebody else they will introduce you the people those people very often talk to you find something out about you I, i've been in madrid a while and one or two people had said to me oh you know we must meet for lunch i assume we met like this in a british sense which is never call me again <laughs> you know uh so you know and then the next time i run into the same person they say why didn't you call me about lunch at which point I realised they actually meant it. Right. They meant, I may have only met you briefly, but you seem like an interesting or nice person, so let's get to know each other a bit. Okay. And, and it really took me time to adapt to that idea. People do meet... I mean, my very best friend in, in Spain, who sadly uh, died, and the film is dedicated to him, yeah. um, we met uh, literally because of a conversation in bed he was having with his lover. Okay. Um, that is actually true. She happened to know my girlfriend, mentioned that oh, she's got this, you know, new guy who's come over from Britain. He's a filmmaker, scriptwriter, and he was working for Lola Films. And he said, well, have him, have him call me. Right, okay. <laughs> and that is how we met. <laughs> That's not a conventional social way of making connections. But it is, but, yeah, I, I must admit, but the, the film itself does does reflect that then. I mean, I've never seen... I mean, I, 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 I'm understanding more now obviously talking to you but that that you being submerged in it and then beginning to start to look at what you're actually doing there and how it is different really comes across and if, if things like that because you you do you, you say there's a big cast and you know there's someone that's seen it they all seem to matter in, in even even in those kind of brief ways that you meet people they still seem to matter to david's story they don't they're not incidental in the sense of we're going to show david doing something funny we're going to show david doing something sad they, they do all seem to be kind of like brief but genuine 
Oh yeah, well, I mean, that, and that also was a big writing challenge, especially because, but yeah, very much aware, nice. the climax of the film, I bring together virtually all the significant characters in one place at one time. Yeah. Which was a massive jigsaw puzzle to write, and all of them have some kind of story resolution. Um, and how you do that without it all seeming too manipulated, mm. it is, but make it seeming natural, whilst of course it's a very complex writing thing. Yeah, that was a huge challenge, but I wanted everybody to feel like they had the before and after, so, so that all the characters kind of have a presence beyond their actual minutes on screen, if you see what I mean. Yeah, now without giving, I won't give anything away, but I'll use the, I'll use the word photograph, and you all know what that means, mm-hmm. without it meaning too much to people listening, to spoil the story, but um, where did you come up with that idea? Because obviously that, the, 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 the sort of photography and, you know, your, the sort of mid part of the film, and then where we get the kind of, the, the finale of it, that, that, that part of the story is quite important, even though in the, in the first half of the film, you, the photography doesn't really doesn't mean anything at all, as far as I remember. It's, yeah, it's, it's there, but in, you yeah, know, it's kind if, of, if, if you care to look closely, you'll see me getting that camera out usually yeah. often, but it's utterly incidental. Yeah, I mean, uh, I remember there was, you were sat by a fountain, you took an, a sort of surreptitious yeah. photograph of a couple kissing, yeah. I think it was. But, that was. but I didn't think at that point, oh, that's, that's an important thing for me to... Well, 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 that too was part of my style of writing, which okay. some people object to it because they feel you've got to signpost everything, but I actually quite like the idea that something's just, you, you don't actually know what's going to turn out to be important or not <laughs> later down the line. No, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I fully, I'm, I'm well behind that. I mean, I think we need, I think it's always better when we treat our audiences with, uh, with a bit of intelligence. And also, I mean, that, that's based on, uh, that, that's actually really a camera that I have. All those photographs are really photographs I took in Madrid. And I did, at a certain point, actually stage an exhibition encouraged by people I knew. Yeah. And, and uh, it was kind of a definitive moment for me there where I suddenly realised, I, as I was looking at this great big crowded room of people hmm. drinking and staring at my pictures, that I had a far bigger social network in Madrid than I had realised and I had sort of arrived. Mm. So it was taken directly um, from experience, that, uh, that, that concept of, uh, of something which had been entirely something incidental and a hobby to me that actually, uh, in the end, I actually sold quite a lot of pictures and, and uh, it brought an awful lot of people together into my life. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's where it came from. But I also like the idea that you don't know you don't know what it might be that's taking you into the future and the way he gets taken into a future is something accidental and kind of unexpected that turns out to be more important. Yeah, I mean, like you said yourself, that, I mean, what you said, the kind of life lessons you've learned, you know, in London now you quite happily would be spontaneous and do something and things. And the, the, the film certainly reflects that in, in a character. Hmm. Um, you know, every and because you get used to him, but obviously the great the great impulse was him to come to the woman he loves, and then obviously after ever after that, it's kind of a minor impulse, isn't it, in comparison to sort of yes. showing up shop back in England and coming all the way to Spain. So when you meet, like you say, when you meet these kind of this great queue of people in different situations, then you you are going to take it for as far as you can, and, and certainly the character you write does. He doesn't mess around. He never. He, I don't think there's any point. He, he, you never get the. Dra- you never. You never try to make drama out of. Oh no, I'm not sure if I should. It always seems to be that, <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound. 
yes, yes, which is also what tends to happen to you when you travel, uh, and is also what what um, maybe more easily happens when you're in Spain and you start to go with the flow. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I I can think of many many nights out in Madrid where I would kind of say goodbye to people at six o'clock in the morning and they were not any of the people I started the night with. <laughs> uh, and I wasn't even necessarily quite sure where I'd met them along the way. Um, that's really no joke. I mean, I quite literally, I remember one night having somebody literally fall on me out of the doorway as a result of which I was then directly invited out for a drink with the people, with the people that this woman was with, you know, just straight away. We just mm. went off and had a drink. Uh, to celebrate me having caught this person. Uh, you know, it, those things happen. <laughs> so what was what was it, uh, if the people are great, as it were, so what was it like as a filmmaker to shoot a film in Madrid? Well, I'm not sure I can give an entirely fair answer because the way I shot my film was so unusual. I was shoot. I, I had no crew uh, yeah. when I started the process. I, I, had, I think I had six or seven weeks to pull an entire crew together. I didn't have one person when I began. Okay. Um... And everybody worked uh, for nothing, just for a share of the profit, should there ever be some. And I told everybody, don't do it for that reason, only do it because you want to do it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my crew was largely younger and less experienced, uh, more people out of film school who'd never done anything like this. Um, in fact, nobody had really ever done anything like this who worked on the film. Um, so I can't really say it's a standard uh, experience. And obviously when people work for nothing... You have to work in a different way. You have to accept uh, things won't always go the way you're hoping to go. Uh, and, and to be, if I'm honest, the first two weeks of shooting were such a disaster. I, I considered abandoning it. Um, really? So what, what brought what, what brought that, and what was your what, what made it so disastrous? Um, well, basically, obviously, uh, I was really making a film with no strings attached at all, um, uh, no visible means of support, just paying for what I could out of my own pockets, made sure everybody was fed, location fees were paid, that was it, really. Um, and I was shooting it in a way I'd never shot anything before. And I kept having to emphasise this to the crew when they got very alarmed at me, that, you know, I'd never shot anything this way before either. I was doing it partially out of necessity and partially because I felt it suited the style of the film as I wanted it to be, which meant I shot entirely... I actually shot most of the film... I mean, there were no storyboards. Uh, I, sh I rarely do that, but I usually carefully shot list, and I didn't even shot list most of the film. Uh, most of what you see was improvised upon the moment. Not the script. The script was a kind of the firm centre of everything, but how it was going to happen, I only decided from moment to moment, uh, which is very scary. This Spanish culture had a massive impact, you know? <laughs> uh, well, it had. It had. And, and the weird thing was, I kind of found myself with a Spanish or... Spanish-speaking crew, because they weren't all Spanish by any means, they came from all over the place, mm. um, having to say, well, why is it that I'm actually the oldest person here and the English one saying we can do things a different way, you know, loosen up? <laughs> um, you know, it seemed all wrong. Uh, but it was. It was really like me saying, come on. And, and the, uh, one of the nicest things was said to me by one of my camera people, because it was mainly two people, but it was like a little flexible team shot the film because I knew it could never get shot by any one single person. Yeah. Um, which was, again, something everybody said, you can't shoot a film without a DOP, but I did. The film did not have a DOP. Um, it was effectively that. Uh, and one of the guys, who was a Colombian guy, who was a photographer and a quite a sort of fastidious kind of guy, when we had the rap party, he said, um, I just wanted you to know that... 
I don't approve at all of how you made this film. Cool. Um, it goes completely against everything in my training. But I noticed that it was working. <laughs> I decided to carry on with you. That's interesting, thought, isn't it? And I thought, well, that's really nice. And I think, I think the people who stuck, the crew that became the main crew in the end, because we lost many in the first couple of weeks, were the ones who just kind of said, this English guy's crazy, but it sort of seems to become something interesting seems to be coming out, so we'll stick with it. What was, uh, the, tip, what was the tipping point for you then that you knew you could go on? Was there anything significant that happened? Um, well, it, essentially, in the first few weeks, I, I lost every, virtually every major, <laughs> major member of my crew. Okay, uh, that's pretty. Uh, my head of production. Yeah. Uh, I actually uh, lost my sound recorder. It's not, not any fault of his or anything. Uh, the, the, night, the night before, like less than 12 hours before we were shooting. Um, and the guy who, who stood in, he, he recommended a guy to stand in because he was you know, in a family crisis. He had to fly out. And the guy who, who stood in actually shot, recorded everything in the film. Wow. Even when we came back and shot some more the following year, he, mm. he, he still did it. Um, and it was basically... There was a point at which I just thought, you can't keep hemorrhaging crew. You know, you can't, you know, you're shooting a film trying to find crew. It's insane. Um, And it was the point at which, number one, we had a bunch of people who got behind it. Mm -hmm. And an important element of that was finding an assistant director who understood that what I was doing worked, even though it went against his training. Yeah. And could kind of started to chill out that the people shooting it began to chill out about the idea that the shooting is shared, it's not one person's vision. And actually that frees them up to go away and work other days, you know, and get paid. And that's an advantage, not a disadvantage. Okay. And, and when in a way the production team, and thanks to my hard-working head of production, who I think also thought I was utterly nuts, well, she, I know she thought I was nuts, um, uh, understood my flexible working concept, which is we would actually have a flexible-sized crew, not a fixed-sized crew. So, in other words, we would have the crew that was needed for the kind of things we were shooting that day. Mm-hmm. So, at its smallest, literally just a camera person, for the odd thing, or maybe just a camera person and a sound recordist for certain things because of where we were shooting or because there were very intimate moments where, you know, it's easier for you to act them with a very small crew. Um, and, you know, the big thing at the end, we had the largest crew all working at once, which is still tiny by any standards, 14 people. That was our biggest crew at any moment. On average, five to six people every day. But again, you know, we will say the production assistant might change from day to day. So one person might be on set, somebody else is at home making phone calls, organising something for the next day, and then maybe the next day they're there. And we worked like this. And once people kind of got it and saw that actually it was advantageous, we sort of got on a roll and we were able to do more ambition. Which is kind of why I, we didn't shoot that end sequence till about five weeks into the shoot, although that wasn't the end of it, the end of the shoot, uh, because I knew it was going to take us time to find our rhythm. And we needed to, to have that by the time we shot such a complex thing involving 22 character actors and live musicians and extras and the whole thing, you know. Mm. How, do you, how do you find... So that was it, yeah. Sorry. Uh, how, how do you find um, your directing yourself? What are, the, what are the advantages of directing yourself and what would you say have been the, were the disadvantages? Um, well, there is an advantage of directing yourself, which uh, nobody had ever told me about or nobody that I never heard from anybody interviewed about it yeah. and that is you can direct a scene from within 
By which I mean, if you're the, if you're the principal character, yeah. you can change the other actors by behaviour by changing your behaviour. Oh, so what? But you mean like within character, as it were? Exactly. Okay. So if I feel that I'm not getting quite what I want out of somebody, I can do something unexpected, change the script, suddenly come at them with a lot more energy or a different emotion or something, and it kind of jerks them out of maybe being in a rut and forces them to do something new, and you haven't even had to talk about it. Um, do you have an example you could give us where, where, you, where you did that? Um... Um, well, I can give it. There's a few scenes like in a in a photographic laboratory. Yeah. Um, and the guy who did a very good job of acting like the manager of this lab, he was he came in the absolute last moment. He was an actor from Malaga who was in Madrid to do a very important audition that day, and we basically nabbed him for the afternoon. Okay, that's good. <laughs> we had we had to shoot three scenes in just a few hours before he got on the train back to Malaga in order that it didn't cost us anything. Uh, and uh, he'd been prepping for this important audition and I, I met him at lunchtime for the first time. I actually physically met him, ran through the scenes over lunch. Uh, he was very nervous because essentially he had been preparing for this big audition and he hadn't really had the time to focus on the script and he the kind of actor who liked to really be absolutely on top of everything. Okay. So he was really uh, all a bit all over the place. Um, when we were trying to shoot it, uh, just because he was worried about doing it wrong. And I had to sort of tell him, you know, kind of, literally, don't worry, I'm shooting this in a way that if you mess up, I'll work, I'll work around it. Just basically don't worry. But in the end, what I did on various takes that you see mm. is, uh, I mean, the scene where I get angry with him, but a few times I just really kind of turned on him. Uh, and, I th and I think off the script... And, and it sort of jerked him into really responding to me, kind of genuinely a bit flustered, um, and just saying whatever came into his head, which his character should say in that moment, and that works a lot better. Um, Did you, do you pre-warn the actor that might happen, or do you just do it? Oh, those things, I just do it. OK. Yeah. Um, I, the other thing in terms of directing myself... Yes. It's uh, Angela, Angela, the, the, the lead actress. Uh, I asked her to kind of be a coach for me. She'd never done this, you know, she's just an actress herself. Yeah. She tried to get a coach for me, you know, a very good acting coach. And I spent two and a half hours talking to this woman and I thought, you're great. I don't see eye to eye with you at all. <laughs> nothing, nothing you've said to me has helped me. <laughs> and I just rang Angela up and said, it's very nice of you. I just rather it was you. I, I think that you have better ideas for what I need to do. Okay. So, so when she could, and she couldn't all the time, but when she could, I asked her to be on set and give me feedback. Um, I see, I see, right. right. So that I'd have somebody, you know, and we knew each other well, and she could just say stuff to me, and, you know, she could say anything she liked to me, so that was okay. And the other thing I did, uh, especially if she wasn't there, I'd say to other actors, you can give me feedback, mm -hmm. which the actor's not used to. And some people stormed off my film because they said, you can't have a film in which the crew are allowed to say what they like. And actors are talking back to you. You know, you can't, you can't shoot a film like that. It's like you're not properly in control. A film set is funny, isn't it, about the way it treats the hierarchy of the roles you have. It's, it's, it, 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 it is it's one of the weirdest things I've found about a film set. Yeah, I mean, the, my first DOP was literally outraged. I mean, he basically went off in a huff mm -hmm. and, and abandoned me after the first 24 hours in a way that he, in a disgraceful way, disgraceful and unprofessional way. Uh, and it was really about that. It's, it's almost, it's sometimes it's, it's a bit like, uh, it's collaborative, but only in the I'm all right, Jack, sense, in the sense of I have a job and you have a job, and we all yep. do our jobs, and that makes a film, but we don't, we don't blur the lines. 
Yeah, and I, and I just feel, I mean, I suppose if you're working with a giant crew, then maybe it's true, but with a small yeah, crew, yeah. Uh, why not? I mean, the, what people forget is, I think the single, one of the single most important jobs you do as a director is to act as a filter. Because there are endless options before you and endless pressures coming down on you hmm. at any given moment. And in the case of my film, the pressures were massive all the time. Um, it was always really close to the edge of complete disaster. Yeah. Um, and what you do as a director is you take in, you consider all these possibilities, you listen to all the options, and then you say, what of these might get me closer to what I'm aiming to do? And people think that if you let everybody speak up, that it's a free-for-all. But that's not what's happening. I'm there as a director, filtering everything I hear. And I might say, oh, you know, that's very interesting, which means you're nuts. There's no way I'm going to do that. Yeah. Um, but the point is, I'd still rather that person said something, because it could be the next time they say they hit the nail on the head, and actually they come up with exactly the solution to the problem you're all facing at that moment. Well, no, this is this is the this whole basic kind of management theory in a way. It's kind of you could you could use that logic in any kind of office environment. To be honest with you, uh, yes, and, and, and sometimes you, you know, and it, the only thing you have, obviously, as a creative, is your intuition. But sometimes, even in terms of actors feeding back to me, hmm. I remember uh, certainly, say, a couple of let's say the the, the older and more traditionally trained actors, yeah, getting a bit disconcerted by me, and um, saying to me words to the effect of, "You're not doing anything." Uh, but you're not um, you're not acting, um, and you know rather than take offence, I just had a moment of introspection and realised that probably meant I was doing it exactly right. Because if that's what they were feeling coming from a school where you tend to do more, and indeed I had tried had to work on them to do less, basically, but that probably meant I was hitting it just right. So even things that seem bad sometimes tell you where you are. What was, um, in terms of shooting in Madrid itself, how, how, how accommodating is the city as a place to shoot a film? What, what did you learn from that experience? Um, well, although, kind of, although, you know, we were, we were shooting, let's say, a bit guerrilla style, won't go into details, but uh, that said, um, you'd be surprised that actually a lot of times I think we're doing, oh, we're doing things with no commissions. No, we had commissions to do a lot of what we're doing. Mm. Um, the film office is pretty good, actually, in Madrid. Um, and, and even though we were something minuscule, they accommodated us very quickly. Uh, and the one thing, I never told my crew I was going to shoot the whole film handheld. Okay. Uh, because, again, this scared the shit out of them, um, that they weren't making a proper film. Um, so I just said we was doing this for the first couple of days of filming, but then later I'd be getting, you know, various camera supports. We'd have a tripod and that. Um, what, were you, what were you shooting on? We were shooting on a little Canon DSLR. Okay. Um, this is an mir absolute miracle machine. Uh, and this enables you to be more discreet because it looks like a photographic camera. So that yeah, puts yeah, people sure. in the public at their ease. Yeah, and the sure. other thing I discovered was, essentially, as far as the, uh, the uh, film um, uh, the authority is in, in Madrid, whatever you call it, mm -hmm. um, that if you don't put anything physically down on the pavement... Um, you're not putting tripods down, you're not trailing any cables, you have huge freedom to do what you like because you're not creating an obstruction to the public highway of any kind. Uh, and that's another one of the reasons I didn't do it. I didn't um, use it. Because the moment you do that, you have to, it gets a bit more complicated, the authorization process. But if you say, we're not going to use a tripod, they just go, oh, there you go, you can film there tomorrow, no problem. Okay. 
So basically, it's almost like the less of an intrusion you are, the, the more likely you are to get to meet flexibility. Uh, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. That said, so I have to mention this in talking to various people in the filming. <laughs> I was told a wonderful story of somebody who'd worked on a shoot hmm. in the Plata Mayor, where I shoot. There is a scene in the Plata Mayor where I'm screaming at an accordionist, um, where somebody had shot there, hmm. put up a great big load of lights, uh, laid a track right across there with a crane on it, and shot for a night without any permission. <laughs> Because just people will assume if you come with that much kit, surely you must have got permission. I've often thought this, you know. I mean, I mean, it, it, it'd take a kind of, I don't know, it would take a rather alert policeman to think, I've got all this other stuff going on. They've got so much kit, they must, they must have got it. Well, clearly, I, like, you'd be mad to do it with no permission, wouldn't you? Of course, so, no, I mean, for the, for the other reasons of the cost of the equipment, you'd be mad to take that chance, but, exactly. but you know, such is life. Well, well, I spoke to somebody who participated in that shoot, so listen. But when we actually shot there ourselves, that was also ironic. Um, it was about the only time we ever actually uh, used a, a, a tiny generator, the lights. Yeah. Um, uh, it got stolen the next time we used it. That's another story. Um, uh, we were in the Plata Mayor, and the problem was we had had permission, but we weren't able to shoot that night. So we were basically being cheeky and shooting a night or two later with no permission. Uh, okay. I mean, we had permission to shoot on the premises we were shooting, but not to be on the square in public, and obviously this time we were actually putting up a couple of lights, there were some cables trailing around, so it was more of an issue that you had the right permission. And uh, and uh, as we were setting up, the police, who are usually there, there's usually a police car there, yeah. came up and said, what are you doing? <clears throat> they said, uh, and, and one of the producers said, oh, you know, we're just doing this filming thing, and they're saying, um, uh, well, you know, you have to have a special... Um, you know, if you're going to actually have a generator and all that, you need a special permit. And they said, uh, oh, well, uh, oh, you know, sorry, we didn't realise, you know, we're, we're here doing this. We're... And they said, oh, well, look, not to worry. Um, tell you what, um, why don't you just stick that generator around the back of our car, just, you know, to keep the sound out of the way. And we filmed. <laughs> so what seemed like a problem ended up being a a good solution for you because we were trying to find where to put the generator where you couldn't hear it yeah yeah no sure, sure. <laughs> now now moving on obviously the film's made and stuff and i think i think we met early in the summer didn't we originally you and i we did yes. you told me about you made this film and the reason we're doing the podcast at this time is you've had some good news to do with taking the film forward and do you want to tell people what that is uh, yes, uh, I've been sort of shopping the film around trying to get it into a, a good festival to launch it mm. um, and I've been encouraged to not give up with that, I have to say, by one or two people in the business and it paid off because uh, partially the result of it being screened in Cannes in the market, yeah. it was uh, picked up on by the Dinar British Film Festival in France, um, which... Uh, it's a festival some people know, some people don't. It's kind of like, I don't know quite how to describe it, maybe slightly more an insider's festival. Yeah. In the sense that it is a festival of British film, which takes place in this lovely little coastal resort on the north coast near Saint-Malo, or Dinar. Yeah. Uh, they've been doing it for 25 years, and they show basically what they consider the best of new British cinema that, that has not yet been seen in France, you know, and that's not actually been distributed yet. Mm. Um, and uh, everybody says it's a lovely, lovely festival. They, they're real kind of cinephile audience. Um, they really, really, the French do love their cinema, and they come out in droves and come to Dinar in droves to watch films. Um, and it's a small selection, basically, of about 20 
movies, mm -hmm. uh, plus various special screenings, like this year Stephen Woolley's doing a retrospective and, uh, and uh, various others. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, they actually charter a plane from London, which I will be on next Thursday, to fly over like 150, 200 people from the British film industry over to Dinar to spend the next few days um, watching British film and swanning about a bit, basically. So in a very a few, relaxed. So, for a few days, you'll be, you'll be seeing how the other half live. Is that what you're saying? Well, a little bit of that. I mean, they're very kindly. <laughs> They've invited me as a director, and one of my actors is coming over from Spain as well. So really? we're sort of their guests for the festival. So when when's the fe when's the festival run? It's from the eighth to the twelfth of October. Okay. Okay. Uh, and uh, to give you some idea of what else is in the programme, um, uh, well, the opening film is actually going to be Sunshine on Leith, which has not yet been released in France. Okay. Um, and Calvary screening there, uh, Yann Demarge is 71, it's been screened there, The Riot Club's getting its first French screening, and so is Mr Turner, um, so is John Borman's new film, uh, Trip to Italy, and then there's My Teeny Weeny Little Film. And Catherine, Catherine Deneuve's there, isn't she, as well? She is the president of this year's jury. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you know, you're in good company there, mate. Kevin MacDonald's on the jury. <coughs> Amelia Fox. Uh, uh, you know, um, yeah. So just to give us an idea of how much this is, a kind of, you know, in terms of people saying, oh, you know, don't... Oh, sorry, you, you saying I'm not giving up, trying to get it into festivals. Because the, the, this is... I guess this is proof of the old adage that hundreds of people can say... No, but it only takes the one to say yeah to take you really forward. Um, where, how many festivals have you been trying to get the film into before this one? Uh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, I suppose I kind of had my more or less top 20 hit list, let's mm. say. Yeah. Um, when I say that, I mean, I spent a long time filtering all the festivals. And, and I talk about this film, right? Yeah. So this film, which being a British film, being comic, various things. You know, I knew it was very unlikely to hit any of the real Bs, like mm -hmm. your some dancers in Berlin and Ghana. But actually, it was put in, it was viewed by all of them. Um, plus some others like San Sebastian, which obviously would have been very nice, and the, the director of San Sebastian watched it in London, but said no. Um, and the director of Sundance actually watched it in London as well, but said no. Uh, so I'd gone through quite a lot, so I, I would guess, you know, maybe a couple of my top 20 haven't come around yet, but aside from that, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've been through quite a few significant options and been turned down, and I, it's to the credit of as a, uh, a guy I know who, who used to programme Rain Dance and is now a sales agent himself, yeah. and he, he saw this film, you know, before it was actually finished, and he was consistently encouraging and just kept saying... It's a good movie. Keep your sights high, and eventually you'll find the person it clicks with because that's what it is. It's at the end of the day that approaching a programmer and the festival director warms to your film. And the director of this festival, the guy called Hussam Hindi, who's been doing it some years um, and, and runs another festival as well, I think, a Moroccan film festival, and he just saw it and loved it instantaneously. Okay. We, we, we were selected. I mean, we were definitely selected within in less than two, about ten days after camp, um, and, uh, and the final selection wasn't made till August. So uh, that was very nice act of faith on his part. Can you, for, for the younger filmmakers listening, can you give us any any tips? Because I mean, there's a bit of resilience there, isn't it? Because, like you say, you know, I mean, getting a festival director just to look at your film is one thing, and if you're saying 
sort of festival directors for the likes of what do you say Sundance saw your film and San yep. Sebastian. You know this that in itself is a is a victory, isn't it? In many senses, the the sort of the yes and no is is the is the is the, is the sorry the yes is the kind of is is the absolute thing. But just getting your work in front of people is, um, is I can assure you has been an entire uh, learning experience in itself. I I have had to kind of learn the industry from top to bottom in making this film because okay. it's basically just been me most of the time mm-hmm. so I had to teach myself how do you work a film market for instance yeah. I actually spent probably a year and a half warming myself up to by going to San Sebastian a couple of times and going to Berlin a couple of times and starting to meet people, starting to talk as I was trying to get the film finished through post-production so that finally I went to a can and was able to start pitching myself properly to sales agents. And one year later, after that, one of the people I met there said, OK, let's do it. I'll take your film to Cannes this year. Um, so it was a long time working it and, and understanding. And I, I think I feel I know more about <laughs> the ins and outs of the film industry than any director should ever have to know. Um, but I tell you, the most sobering thing that any aspiring filmmaker can do is go to the film market at Berlin or Cannes. Berlin is cheaper, so I'd recommend Berlin. Hotels are much cheaper, everything's cheaper. (laughs) Um, And just walk around the film market and look at the probably two to 4,000 films which are there for sale, aware of the fact that most of these films you've never heard of, never will hear of. Some of those indeed have famous actors in them, or even by directors you've heard of. And look around you and go, do I honestly think there is any way I could be heard above this noise? I mean, sincerely, do I feel my film has anything to offer that is going to get people's attention? Um, it's, a, it's an incredibly sobering uh, and slightly disturbing thing to do. But I, no, think I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I've, not been to, I've not been to Berlin, but I've been to the last four Cannes, and in 2011, I went for the first time with, with that in mind, just to just to see what it was and what it is, because what we see on the news is a very glamorous, you know, affair with celebrities and rich people walking up a red carpet to go and see a film premiere. But what you see in the afternoon is lots of people trying to do deals, trying to sell... Th- I mean, the funny one for me is that, that, that is seeing the very specialist people there. And I don't, in that sense, I don't mean porn. I mean, like, sports films or films with just dogs in. Yep. You know, and there are people specifically there to sell those movies. They're not, you know, they don't have star power. They don't have things that you go, well, there's history of cinema moving forward. <laughs> no, absolutely. There's just just everything, uh, everything. I think my favourite poster that I saw was, and I think it was called something like Christmas Evil or the Evil of Evil Christmas or something, mm. um, which was basically like, you know, it appeared to have merged your classic Christmas movie with a slasher movie. And I thought that was a great idea. <laughs> you just see everything. You just, now, you just now, see barely every, and not to mention, of course, about twenty new films that allegedly Nicolas Cage is about to appear in. Yeah, he, he, there's, there's actually a, there was a blog I was reading one year that was looking at the best airbrushing of a star, and there was three Nicolas Cage not even in production posters yeah. where he looked like somebody out of, a, out of a manga comic, not a human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. all of that. But the other thing is, I mean. It, 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 it is, I mean, it's been said a million times, but it is a people business uh, and it, it is about just getting out there and actually meeting people. And, I'm, you, know, and I've, you know, I've not sold my, I've not made a sale of my film yet. 
I'm still, you know, climbing, trying to climb upwards with it. Yeah. Um, but at least I've had the benefit that a small sales agent got behind me. That because of that, we ended up in in um, Dinar, and now you know I'm beginning to get inquiries from some other festivals wanting to screen it and stuff like that. But it's it's only because I kind of spent a long time laying the groundwork and meeting people, and also, you know, there are like I have one or two people now who didn't take on my film and who didn't produce my film, but who I can call them for advice because they might have said no to this, but they're not saying necessarily no to you. You know, in fact, they might be delighted to read your next script. They just didn't feel they could do anything with this. And, and, and that is also useful. Like, you know, I've, I've got to sign a contract that people can call up and say, would you look at this contract and tell me if I'm being ripped off? You know, and all of that is really useful as no, well. I think that's, that's an important point you make there. I, I, read, I read something similar about getting just feedback on scripts in the sense that, when you're told this script is not working or this script is bad or whatever, in, in, in maybe more flowery terms, but that's essentially how you as the, the creator are hearing it, then you've got to try and understand that it's the script that's being criticised, not you. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's really... You, you have to kind of learn a lot of lessons in humility, I think, if you do want to succeed. Um, and I, the more the years go by, the more and more and more I put things out to test with people. I mean, actually, on my next movie, I've done this at the, the stage of just the idea. I actually was pitching it to producers in Cannes with nothing more than, a, than like one-third of a page pitch, really, that I was just telling people, yeah. um, just to see how people reacted, rather than, you know, spending ages writing something with people go, ah, no, not really. You know, why not know about it in an early stage? Um, whether people like it or not, luckily they liked it, so, so I'm going to get writing. Um, and all through the writing process, I kept showing it to people. I mean, at every stage of the writing, when I wrote that first long treatment, then when I wrote the first draft, then the next draft, uh, keep showing it to people. As I was cutting it, literally, I, was, I did the first cut of the film, and I had a wonderful, wonderful editor do the sort of the refined cut of my film, mm. um, who's one of the, the top editors in Europe, really. Um, uh, but I would literally somebody would come down to my, you, come you, to my hat, sorry Peter do you want to give us the name of that editor yeah sorry Nacho Ruiz Capillas okay who probably wouldn't mean a lot to a lot of British people but I suppose if I mention the others for instance which yeah, he yeah. cut they probably know that Indeed, if you yeah. know your Spanish films he cut Los Lunes al Sol Mondays in the Sun which was one of the film which really brought Javier Bardem to prominence mm-hmm. from a very famous filmmaker called Fernando de Leon he also cuts all the films for Gracia Queda for um, Daniel Sanchez Arevalo whose uh, films are certainly broken out of Spain as well he, he's essentially he's edited most of the best movies that have come out of Spain in the last 15 years um, and happens to be a very nice bloke who actually, despite the fact I'd never met him and didn't know him, and I think this is also to the credit of the Spanish, just said, well, so through a friend of a friend I put in contact, he said, well, let me, let me see your cut. And he watched it, and then just rang me up and said, so when can you send me the hard drive? Oh, my word. And I said, well, Nacho, the thing is, you know, I basically don't have any money. So maybe I can scrape together a thousand euros, you know, but I can't pay you what you're used to getting paid. And he just said, you know, I'm lucky enough I have a lot of work. It's not about the money, just to send me the film. That's fantastic. And he worked on my film. He was wor- the film he was working on in the mornings became Spain's submission for the Oscars, and he worked in my film at home in the afternoons. I guess that's a, I mean, that little anecdote there is almost like, is, is, is evidence again of if you don't ask, you don't get, do you? And it's kind of like, it's not that you ask expecting, but until you flag up to people, you know, 
but also, but also, you know, you must understand, I spent a year, shouldn't have been a year, and I feel embarrassed to admit it was a year, but I spent a year getting a good first cut of my film together. Okay. Uh, I mean, not just really a first cut, but a very refined first cut of the whole film. I mean, we cut maybe 25 minutes of action out yeah. by the final version, but I cut the whole film. Maybe you've seen the shot, I actually cut it, and I cut it quite precisely, and I even came up with some rough musical ideas and stuff like this, so it would be quite a tidy watch for somebody on, with the theory that perhaps I might attract a really good film editor I if I could just show them the potential of the film. Got you. And it did work. I mean, the plan, weirdly enough, I, Nacho came on board less than one week after I finished that cut, which I had no idea that would happen. Uh, but, uh, and I said, well, I said to somebody afterwards that was lucky, and they said, not really. They just said, you worked your arse off. That <laughs> luck happened. And it's like, well, that's true, actually, yeah. No, no, don't take much reading the lines. From what you've said, at the moment, the film isn't going is, to... There's no plan for it to be widely available just yet. That's part of the journey you're on now, isn't it, is to find a way to get this to general audiences in some way, shape or form. Yes, because, uh, you know, obviously these days there's a million options as to where a film of can course. be seen, but there is still an essential problem you cannot get around is people have to know your film exists. OK, well, um, well I was gonna, just going to say then, I mean, obviously, we've talked quite extensively around your film now. Um, and it'd be good, you know, when when you hit that time when you have got announcements to make, you keep us keep us in touch with how how Tea and Sangria gets on, and so we can tell at least Britflix readers that the, that the film will be when it will be available. Absolutely. I mean, I, I I have been hatching plans over the last month to to get it out onto at least a few British screens, and I've talked around it a lot and talked to a lot of distribution people, and have had a distribution guy helping me. Uh, and uh, I still think it's worth it and I would like to do it, although essentially putting a film on cinema screens costs money, it doesn't make money. Of course, yeah, yeah. I, I'm really only getting myself in more debt. Uh, there isn't really another outcome from that process. The question is, overall, for the film, does it seem worth it? And I think it is, but Dinar is really the test, because every first time it's properly, properly in front of a big audience of strangers, and I'm very happy to say that they announced yesterday they're actually going to be showing this on the Thursday night in the Palais after the um, opening film. So uh, I'm extremely chuffed about that. Uh, we, we know, the smallest movie there, so it's quite, a, quite flattering for them to do that. Um, and, and very exciting, I imagine, as well. Well, well, it is, yes. And, and, and the thing is, over in Dinar, there will be other producers, be, there will be British distributors and French distributors, so... It, even people who might have passed on it before, you know, possibly, when they see it with an audience and they see that it's getting some interest, you know, may take a, may have a second look or may have a first look because they never probably watched it the first time. Them's, them's, the, uh, them's the breaks you might get, I suppose, it, because that's, that's the beauty of it when it gets shown and, and people react one way or the other. If people who don't know, they could say, they don't want to say yes to it, then see other people get excited, they... These people are money people, aren't they, in the end, and if they think it can be popular. Well, well that, that's the thing, obviously. I mean, I mean the, way the, the way the world works now, and sorry if this depresses a lot of uh, aspiring filmmakers that might be listening to this, is that essentially uh, you go to a film market, you talk about your... In fact, some conversations you don't even get to pitch your film. The person just says, I have to say this doesn't mean the American person if they have this question, what names you got? <laughs> The most depressing question for any conversation to begin, and I learned very quickly the conversation's going nowhere if it begins with that question. Yeah. Uh, because actually, 
that's all that people are doing a great deal of the time these days. They're not willing to stick their necks out. I was talking to um, a sales agent recently and talking about Once, which obviously was a teeny film, made mm. very much as mine was made, with a tiny bit more money, but really very much made in the same kind of way, with, yeah. with no prospects, with no ambition even to necessarily be in a cinema, which eventually became a very big success, and the song won yes. an Oscar, and there was musical and all of that. And I said, do you think a film like Once would be picked up by anybody today? And she went, no, no way. No way. You know, a film, you know, made that cheaply, no stars, no famous music, you know, what? There's nothing to sell it on. So, uh, it, it, it's, it's a tough, cold world out there at the moment. But, well, but there are reasons why things kick on. I mean, I, know, I mean, the other, the other film that was, the, I mean, different, it was different reasons, but, you know, you think things like Sundog Millionaire, which was kind of sort of just going around the festival circuit, nobody wanted to distribute it, it was kind of dying, and then it suddenly it, it found an audience, and then, you know, the rest is history. Oh yes, I mean those things are wonderful, and actually, much much to the credit of its distributors for kind of sticking their necks out and saying, "Think that now I can make this film a success." Mm. You have to say though, of course, it was you know directed by the director of Train Spotting, written course, by the of, of the Full Monty. Of course, <laughs> and, and that helps. But it, but the sobering thing is, with those credits to it, that weren't wasn't enough to sell it. Yeah, I was going to say, that's what I was saying, it wasn't that you'd think that those were like a walk through the door thing or a walk in the Yeah, and it, it really, and like I said, when you go to film markets, you're surprised at the things you see and you go, how come I didn't ever heard of this? Yeah. Like, no. sure, sure, you know, oh, I like them. I didn't know they'd made this film. Um, but on the other hand, one has to say, and I'm relieved to say that out there, amongst sales agents and amongst distributors, are quite a number of people who are only in it for one reason, which is they're just mad about cinema. And I mean mad in the sense of perhaps being mentally infirm. They just, <laughs> you know, which is good for the likes of filmmakers because it's like they almost know that perhaps they're going to go bankrupt taking something on, but they just sort of really want to. Um, and God bless them for that. Well, so there are still people out there who stick their necks out and go, you know what, I just love this film. I just want people to see it, if I possibly can. God bless them. God bless yeah. them. Look, now, finally... Peter, we like to ask all our guests to recommend as a British film that they think maybe deserves a bit of light shining on it that's not nothing to do with them directly. Or I mean, they may know the filmmaker, but it's not something they've had a hand in. Is there anything, uh, any British film, either from the decades gone or in recent years, that you think Britflix should, listeners and readers should be looking out for? Well, I'm going to recommend a film that I'm going to see for the first time in the cinema this Sunday. Okay. Um, which is... Yeah, I think a very overlooked film because it's been very hard to watch uh, over the years, although it made quite a fuss when it came out, mm-hmm. which is Oh Lucky Man from Lindsay Anderson. Yeah. Uh, which was, in a way, his follow-up to If with Malcolm McDowell. I mean, the character has the same name, although he's not really the same character. Yeah. Um, and sort of a film I cannot imagine being made today. Deeply, deeply British. Can't see how you'd ever get it made today even with the incredible star power that Malcolm McDowell had at that moment, he'd done if he'd done Clockwork Orange, which was in 1973. Mm-hmm. And briefly, Oh Lucky Man is a sort of strange world. Well, some people say it's a version of Candide's, or it's like a pilgrim's progress of this slightly innocent character who's a coffee salesman, which Malcolm McDowell was at one point in his life, mm-hmm. who basically travels through Britain of that day in a rather um, satirical, anti-capitalist um, uh, strange story um, 
quite a rambling story, uh, which is sort of interspersed by wonderful songs by Alan Price, who acts as a kind of Greek chorus on the action, um, and leads you from, like, real depressing slum tenements to the rich to corrupt politicians um, to genetic engineering in one particularly disturbing sequence, and sometimes very funny. Uh, and I, my brother was obsessed with it when he was a teenager, yeah. um, probably partially to do with the fact that Helen, the uh, very particularly nubile young Helen Mirren appears in it. I think that affected him quite a lot. <laughs> um, but also just the general rebelliousness of the entire film. Um, and almost all the actors play multiple roles. There's Arthur Lowe, surely so glad to get away from Dad's army, <clears throat> playing three different characters, which I remember like a sort of corrupt leader of a council in the North who's like showing stag films as they were known in that day, to his councillors in some smoky back room. He, get, he, go, he goes blackface to be some African leader. It was truly bizarre. It's, one, it's, one, it's the one I've not seen of his, actually, of Anderson's. I've not seen it. So. Well, uh, and, and you know what? Um, I often feel that an interesting failure is something I'd rather watch than something uh, successful and unambitious. And Unlucky Man definitely trips over its own ambition and falls down on more than, on more than one point. It's three hours long, apart from anything else. <laughs> it doesn't really need to be that long. But, but in a sense, you could take out any bit of it. It's not like one bit's more important than another. It's a whole series. It's accumulation of all these different incidents and stories that happen. And also, I love the fact that he's daring enough to use what I suppose you could describe as Brechtian alienation techniques, as in Shannon's pretensions. But basically, it's reminding you now and again you're watching a film. Mm. Uh, so when Alan Price and his band are singing the song, sometimes the story just stops, and you see them sitting in a studio somewhere playing a song. Lindsay Anderson is wandering around. Malcolm McDowell's standing there listening. And then when the song's over, the action carries on. Uh, and, and then, but then the band is in part of the story, and then at the end of it, you know, he ends up in a casting for a film with Lindsay Anderson. Uh, well, so Pete, you're Pete constantly Davis. reminded you're watching a movie. This is always just trying to make sold, a point. You've sold it me, and I'm gutted now that I've not made time to watch it yet. So, well, get down to the BFI this weekend if you possibly can. And I did. And the weird thing is, as I was thinking about the film today, something came to me, and I thought, you know, you never know what it is you've taken in and somehow copied. Because I realised that in Tea and Sangria, before I shot the film, I wanted to use the songs of a guy called Garrett Wall, mm -hmm. who's an Irish singer-songwriter based in Madrid. Mm -hmm. And I thought his music really suited the film. So he was involved at a very early stage, and his band, Track Dogs, um, but he does stuff outside of his band as well. Yes. So he's there, he's there, his songs kind of commentate upon the action all the way through the film, in all, all sorts of different styles, but they're always there commentating through the film. And I decided to then put his band in the film, so they actually perform a song in the film, and they perform Bessemi Mucho at another point in the film. And he's kind of a minor but significant character in the film, Indeed, the actual yeah. singer. And I thought, yeah, well... Sort of a bit like Looking Man, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's your little, your little old tweet, really, isn't it? And I'm, it never even crossed my mind as so I was just thinking about it today, thinking you never know what it is you're sort of inadvertently perhaps lifting. Well, look, Peter, thank you very much for uh, coming on the podcast and talking extensively about your experience. I think there's a lot of lessons in there for people to, to take from it from one stage or another. Um, and uh, all the best to look at the DNA Film Festival. Thank you very much, and I'll keep you informed of progress. Please do. Cheers. Cheers. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... 
the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover South Carolina. 